couple of months ago, I sat down at the bar at a restaurant in New York City. I was by myself, and the person sitting next to me seemed wildly distracted. They kept looking around every couple of seconds, typing on their phone. And then you said, uh, I'm not normally like this. And then you, ex- you explained <laughs> the situation uh, that you were, you were doing reconnaissance work, which I got so into. And then you showed me your phone. And I was like, what could you actually be observing? And then you showed me your phone. And it was in, it took it was amazing. It was like thirty seconds to be greeted, forty five seconds to be sat down. <laughs> no one came and spoke to me for like you know a minute. Oh my gosh, you remember like all of it? That's so funny. This is my friend Justine Bell Lambright, and it turns out they weren't distracted. They were on a secret mission that night. They had just gotten a job at this restaurant, and so they were going undercover as a customer before they started work. Before I meet the team before I like actually, you know, hit the ground running, I would love to go in and do like a little secret shopper thing at the bar and just like sit down, have a drink, have a meal and like observe. Spy work. And yeah, spy work. Justine has long left their secret shopper days in the past. Now they are a director at Calche Wine Cooperative, their own radical winery in Vermont. And they're trying to decolonize the wine industry. Now you might think, Do we really have to decolonize wine? How can you decolonize something like wine? Well, think about what comes to mind when you think of wine. You know, for me, the first thing that comes to mind is money. You know, France, maybe California. I think of some of the common types like a Pinot Gris, a Chardonnay, etc. But ultimately, I think of whiteness. I think of elitism and a luxury experience that is out of reach for a lot of people. Justine is one of the many people in the industry who are trying to change that narrative and shake things up. One of the reasons why I am, like, such an activist and why I am doing these things is because, again, we have all of these misconceptions. We have all of these um, rules that were taught to us by people who were just trying to make money or just trying to preserve their family wealth or just trying to maintain the status quo. Today, Justine walks us through the real history of wine. Not the uh, Eurocentric version we get taught. But first, we'll hear about their ups and downs in the food and beverage industry and what they wanted to change when they started their own business. My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Here we go. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
Justine grew up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in a family that liked to drink wine, but were not necessarily wine aficionados. Was there always a box of Franzia in the fridge? Yes, absolutely. But, like, it wasn't something necessarily that was, like, explored, like, the full breadth of what wine could be. It would just be like, oh, this tastes really good with, like, crystal light. And so that's going to be my, like, end-of-night nightcap, you know, for my mom. Um, But my parents did meet working in a restaurant. So, like, I have the the F&B gene. The what gene? Oh, food and beverage. The food and beverage, the F&B gene. Yeah, yeah. The food and beverage gene. Uh, do you have a, a story or a first memory of you actually liking wine? It can be either, it can be the first time you tried it, you know, it could be the franzi in the fridge, but when's the first time you were like, this is something, whether you knew it or not, that you're, Something in your spirit was excited by. So the first time that I tasted wine, um, and it was inadvertently, was on our way to our family summer vacation in Montreal. We would go to the Montreal Jazz Festival every year. I'm probably like nine or ten years old. Um, and both of my parents get out of the car, like, to fill up the gas, get some snacks, whatever, whatever. And my mom had a drink in the front, and I just remember being so thirsty. And I started chugging this, like, Dunkin' Donuts, like, old-school 90s, like, cold mug. And then fell asleep, which I never sleep in the car. And so, um, yeah, I got a stern talking to when I woke up that I can't just drink things without asking. Like, I always have to ask, like, not knowing my mom had had a road soda. Is it a road soda if it's wine? You know, like, I know a road soda is like beer, so we need to come up with a, it's like a road, it's a road juice. A road juice. Well, honestly, that's what it was. Like I said, like, she would be drinking Crystal Light 24-7. It's 1999, you know, what is water? (laughs) But the first time that I tried wine and I was like, oh, this is something cool and can be heady, I was like 18 um, with my aunt. Um, My aunt and uncle own a restaurant on Cape Cod where I'm from. I started working there at like a pretty early age, but we were at this vacation at the table and it was like my first time that I got to taste wine with the adults. And I remember it was a 1987 Chablis. And oh, you remember. I remember. Yeah, I can, I remember the label. I remember all of it. I remember what it tasted like. And it was like a very transformative experience, both because it felt like this moment of trust and like leveling up within the family structure. Like, oh, they think they can entrust me with this time. I can be at the adult table and like be cool. Um, But also I remember thinking, because the only time I had had wine before was that time when I was, you know, in my, in my preteens and I was like, this is not what I remember at all. This is something that's beautiful and it's delicate. So you said something about, you said the first time wine could be heady. By that, do you, do you mean your your brain is involved in the process of drinking? Like, what did, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, like consumption with thought and like consumption with appreciation and something beyond like, oh, this is good, you know, like you or, oh, this is refreshing. It was like I was watching this table of like six adults you know, swirl their glasses and, like, warm up the bowls with their hands and, you know, talk about these different notes. And, like, all of it was just, like, so over my head. And I hadn't I hadn't seen or heard anything like that. And I thought that the, the ritual of it was beautiful. There was just something about it that, like, really caught my attention that, you know, it, 
it like it stands out in my memory. We were at this table and there were like lots of candles and you know the mood was like it was just it was just such a vibe. I like think back to it now and it was like sultry and there was definitely like vinyl music playing and you know one of those moments where you're just like this feels like something that I want that I want to aim for. This is a this is a feeling and an experience that I want to recreate in my life as I move forward. First, I just love consumption with thought. I just I love that as a as a as a life motto. Consumption with thought because we consume so much and we do so much of it without thought or appreciation. Uh I think the thing I really love about wine or food or or those nights that you had that that is still in your memory is the same kind of like the night I met you I was exhausted you know I had just been like on this insane book tour I was exhausted I did not think I would end up I hung out with you for 2 hours more than I would have you know yeah. then your friend came you know, know. like <laughs> Just great, you know, and then you were like, the two of you were like, let's go out somewhere else. And I was like, I'm tempted. I got a 6 a.m. flight. Yeah. Those are the nights I think we remember anyone who's out there hustling, who's like, I'm going to accomplish this and this and this and this. I don't know that we remember that, but we do remember those long, long dinners with wonderful people, with good food and wonderful people and laughter and good music and good vibes. Like, those are the things we remember when you were there when the restaurant closed. Yeah. And that is something that I think is so special about F&B, food and beverage. <laughs> Got the <laughs> you know? lingo. Got the lingo. What do you enjoy about uh, sort of service industry or food and beverage? Or Oh, my gosh. I, I love it. I, it's a love-hate relationship, but honestly, it's mostly love, food, and working in restaurants has given me pretty much everything that I have. Um, it's given me a really strong work ethic. It's given me an incredible amount of drive and multitasking skills. Before moving to New York, the thing that I have always really loved is just like the it's food. I love food <laughs> and being able to experience it and there's this thing in the hospitality industry where, like, if you work in the industry, you work in a restaurant and you go to another restaurant and they know that you that you are, you know, with it, they will do what's called soigne, uh, which is, like, they will take care of you. Like, prendre soin in French means to take care of. And so um, they give you, you know, like, things that are off the menu. They find an old dusty bottle that, you know, maybe someone ordered years ago. They haven't been able to sell because it's, like, a little bit weird. But you, because you have the stuff, because you would be someone who would appreciate and you speak the same language— They'll break it out for you. And so I have had these world-class experiences. And also, like, you know, they'll do it at cost because we don't necessarily make the amount of money that it takes to appreciate the luxury of our own business, which is absolutely a travesty. But you do get these special moments with people who, you know, are working the floor and working 10 hours on their feet every day, you know, like dealing with the hangry people, with the bachelorette parties, with like the, the you know, pre-Broadway brunches. I have found that 
yeah, my favorite part of F&B is one, like the experiences that you get to have because you pay your dues and because you put in this hard work, but also just the the people that also work in food. Like we have this common thread of like loving to have a good time, loving to host a good party, loving to like put on a show. So you just get a lot of really fun and like vibrant personalities, which is very cool. Justine worked in the New York restaurant world for years, and even though they loved it, it was also exhausting. They lost one job after their former boss was exposed for sexual harassment. The late nights meant Justine had less time to spend with their wife. So eventually, they moved out to Vermont to escape the hustle and bustle. In Vermont, Justine started working for a winemaker, a black winemaker. They thought, damn, this is cool. But this boss also wasn't doing everything above board. In alcohol making, there are three steps, like three places where you pay taxes, where you need permitting, or where you need, like, distribution. And they hadn't been doing really any of it. So the day before we were laid off, or two days before we were laid off, uh, like, the alcohol bureau came in, like, alcohol bureau cops came in, like, with guns being like, we're going to seize everything. So... I'm, we're sitting there, my coworker at the time, Grace and I, and we're like, we could do this, right? Like, we could definitely do this. And so we decided to um, to write up a business plan and present it to the owners, and we wanted to buy the business from them because they were quite clearly not respecting it or respecting us. The owners basically wanted like three times what we were willing to give them for a quarter of what we were asking for in terms of like intellectual property. So we said, thank you. No, thank you. We literally already have the business plan. So we're just going to do our own thing. Um, And yeah, that's what we did. We went and we got some investment. There are really cool uh, financing institutions for nonprofits, worker cooperatives, like minority-owned businesses. Uh, We went with the Community Development Financial Institution, and they gave us a really forgiving loan at like a very, very low rate. And we've been working off of that ever since. Restaurant workers sticking it to their bosses by starting out on their own. Now, you couldn't script a better story. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Justine is going to tell us more about their business and how they work to decolonize wine. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? 
start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at Fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And we are back with Justine Bell Lambright, a wine expert and a founder owner of Calche Wine Cooperative. How'd you pick the name Calche? So Calche, uh, we read this article and it was speaking about the word calche and it its original significance was as the tiny purple sea mollusk that was used in antiquity for purple dye um but it was it was such a prized thing to find it was found very very deep in the water and it was really hard to get to and it was so in demand you know, that, like, there would be times where you would just spend hours diving and diving and get absolutely nothing. But you were, you know, sort of, like, trapped in your brain and trapped in thought. And so it came to signify, like, a deep search for thought. And that was, like, where we were at uh, at the beginning of the pandemic when we when we came together. We were just, like, in a deep search for, like, something better. Something better indeed. When Justine and their co-founders started Calche, they knew they wanted to do things differently than the restaurants and institutions they had been a part of in the F&B world. No more abuse, no more shitty pay. If they were going to do this, they were going to find a way to do it better. I think it's important to note that uh, the business model that we came up with, um, we're a worker cooperative winery. We are all equal owners. Anyone who comes on in the future has the opportunity to be an owner. Part of the reason for that is the history in the wine industry of land hoarding, land ownership, uh, like power hoarding. Because wine, like everything else, is primarily worked by bodies of culture, but owned by white bodies. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like in the United States, uh, 98% of the people who work in the vineyard are brown or black bodied, and uh, they represent less than 1% of ownership. Yeah. And as I say, things do not change until we are the check signers, not the check receivers. Yes, yes. So there are three founder owners, um, myself, Kathleen Cherry, and Grace Meyer. So anyone who works with us, whether you're full-time, part-time, seasonal, or an intern, you log your hours. Once you get to a 1,000 hours or like a year of work, we'll bring you in for a meeting. And if if the board, a.k.a. the three of us, approve this person coming in, then our thirds become quarters. This person comes in, and then they get integrated into, like, our meeting structure, which is, like, very organized and, like, very uh, meticulous because we are equal owners. This isn't something that we're going to be able to, like, pass down to our children. We're not going to be, like, hoarding this land, hoarding this business, and then without anyone ever having worked the field or bottled anything, just, like, inheriting it and then getting to tell the people that have been here for ages what to do. So, like, it's going to stay within, you know, employee ownership. Another thing is that, you know, because we're talking about these, like, black and brown-bodied folk who are in the fields, those jobs are often, like, 
dead end in terms of ownership. You know, you can be someone who works your fingers to the bone your entire life and have no ownership over anything in that business, no say over anything on that land that you are taking care of, you know? And it's the people that are working the hardest in this industry, in in this field, that are getting paid the least. Like, I... I feel very privileged that my business partners love doing the agricultural work. I hate it. So, like, I am so happy that, like, these people who are doing this work that, like, I am not built for, you know, it does not bring me joy, that, like, they can have an equal cut of the pie, even though, historically speaking, someone who does my job, who does sales, not only gets paid more in salary, but I also get a commission off of this product that wouldn't happen without their hands. Calche prides itself on supporting everyone who works there fairly, no matter what their role is. But that couldn't be more different than the wine industry at large. Now, it turns out everything that's been said and assumed about wine and how a vineyard might run is influenced by, you guessed it, colonialism. Even the very beginnings of wine are more complicated than you might think. In terms of, like, what is wine, where is wine from, like, all of those things surrounding it, it cannot be overstated that wine as we see it today is a direct product of colonialism. And that is to say that the first grapes that were planted in California, um, they are known as Mission. Um, It's the grape Pais. And those grapes were brought over by Spanish missionaries to California. And the land that they were planted on was stolen Uh, after large amounts of, you know, extinction of indigenous people to hold the land. Um, So already, like, the the culture of wine that we're talking about in our country is just steeped in violence. And it's steeped in racism. But, But that's not the first instance that we're seeing vines being used and power being taken away from indigenous people. Grapes getting to France, the Roman Empire used Gaul as one of its grape-growing regions. There wasn't enough land in Italy. They had pretty much saturated it with as many grapes as they could. They needed room for other food that people could actually eat, so they started outsourcing their grape-growing to the rest of the Roman Empire. Vines were brought from Italy to France so that the Gaul slaves could tend the vines. You know, so we talk about France as like the end all be all, but like they're they weren't even the first ones to the party in Europe. And then if we rewind even further, Italy and Greece got grapes from the Levant. So like from uh like Lebanon and that area. There are folks who say that um, that Vitis vinifera, the grape that, you know, we're talking about Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, there's evidence that says that that originated in Georgia, the country. Um, and so for a long time, people assumed that, like, that is actually the birthplace of wine. That was, you know, um, something that people started really evangelizing in the last 15 years. However, 
In 2019, the wine anthropologist Patrick E. McGovern was able to chemically verify now what is the earliest evidence of wine, and it is coming from Jiahu, China, and it dates back to 7,000 B.C. And we're talking about, like, in France, the Gauls received the vines in, like, 400 A.D. Wow. But— but we're centering Western Europe as, you know, the place for wine. But it's through a Eurocentric lens. Of course, that's going to be, you know, the way that we're taught because we, those people are trying to make money and they were trying to benefit their businesses. Like anything that we have learned in terms of like European history is just a massive PR campaign by, you know, rich people and colonizers that like it's such a tailored view of what was actually going on. And wine's no different. Where did you learn all the history? Uh, I go to a lot of panels. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot. But also I ask a lot of questions. Um, It's been interesting, especially, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, in the wake of George Floyd, where people of color have felt a lot more comfortable with, like, asking these questions or saying, like, this seems fishy. I think that there's more to this. Everyone is just, like, so much more confident and able to, like, say these these theories that we've all been thinking of or, like, you know, talk about these experiences of being a brown person in wine, which is just so white and so male and so, like, born into privilege for the most part. Like, there's a really large gap for people who look like us to even, like, get to anywhere where people will take you seriously. And historically speaking, in order for them to take you seriously, you can't have any wiggle room or any sort of creativity in that. So it was just like, here is the information. You want to be a master psalm. You've got to study this. You have to drink these 10,000 wines. You have to be perfect. And if you're perfect, then we'll take you seriously. Justine says it's not just black and brown folks who suffer from the way the wine industry operates. It's also the earth. Grape growing and wine cultivation can have really negative impacts on the environment. So part of working to decolonize wine means growing grape varieties that are more acclimated to their environments, which Justine says there are some pretty cool options and hybrids out there. We don't want to spray chemicals, and we don't want to have to use a bunch of labor to to bury these vines. And so we're seeing the use of these hybrid grapes as a response to climate change because it's not just cold-hardy hybrids that exist. There are also drought-resistant hybrids. Yeah, you told you me know, about that. That blew my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, Heat-resistant, uh, ones that are, you know, they're developing ones now that uh, can combat smoke taint. So, like, assuming that California wildfires are now, you know, just, like, something that we are going to be dealing with. Yeah. How do we how do we continue to make to make wine there without having to waste or without selling people wine that tastes like barbecue sauce? Have you had these? That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Have you had have you had these drought resistant grapes or these heat resistant grapes and how are they? Yeah, I think they're fantastic. And so one of the reasons why I am like such an activist and why I am doing these things is because, again, we have all of these misconceptions. We have all of these um, rules that were taught to us 
by people who were just trying to make money or just trying to preserve their family wealth or just trying to maintain the status quo. And I've realized, you know, over, you know, the amount of time that we've had to reflect, like, during the pandemic that, like, I don't care. You know, I don't care about the rules and I don't care if it makes me unpopular. Like, there is this thing and there are these people that are so passionate. And I use the word radical a lot, but it's just like, I feel like I'm living through a renaissance. Like, I can see change happening around me. I can, I'm watching the snowball get bigger as it's rolling down the hill. Because, you know, what else, what else is there? What are the other options? We stick to what we've always done. You know, we keep using sprays and sulfites and, you know, shipping things over and back again using glass. And, you know, there's just there are a lot of small changes that we can do to make this luxury product that we make because that's what it is. It is a luxury product that I'm making. Like nobody needs wine, really, and not like shipped from state to state. Like wherever you are, there could be wine there and we could completely cut out so many carbon emissions by people just drinking locally. But there's this idea... Wherever you are, there could be wine there. Absolutely. Wherever. And there probably has been wine there. Minnesota. Yes. 100%. Minnesota. Mississippi. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And what's cool about the South is that, like, you know, when you're not restricted to this box of just, like, grapes, it's like, okay, well, what grows down there? I found out, like, since doing this, that in South Carolina, my great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother made dandelion wine every summer. Wow. Or every spring. Wow, that's cool. Very, very cool. There are so many apples in Vermont. Like, yes, there are rolling hills with vines, but there are all, there's immensely more apple trees in Vermont. And so it's like, why, why should we, as like new business owners, plant a bunch of grapes when we have this product and these trees that have been here for a hundred years? It sounds like a much more regenerative approach to sort of the planet and what's here, right? And I think like a big issue with climate change, with our culture is we have taken, taken, taken and planted things in places where they shouldn't be, you know, that need more water. And so that to decolonize is to say like, I love that, you know, very simply put, you told me only one thing can make wine, but wine is really just fermentation. How beautiful to meet your space and your environment and to say, what's here? What's the magic of fermentation that I can do with what is here? 100%. Now that we've gotten into all the history, it's time for some rapid-fire questions that I have been dying to get the answers to. What makes a good wine? Uh, Flavor. Preference. Flavor. What do we have to taste? What are we, as a a novice, what am I looking for when I drink a wine? Um, One thing about ferments is that it it, it triggers your fight-or-flight response. So if it's something that, like, makes you feel safe, if it's something that makes you feel warm, it makes you feel good, then that's good wine. Damn, I love that answer. Does wine ever expire? Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. It's a living thing. Every living thing dies. Okay. So for the people, those of us who open a bottle and then put it in our fridge over a week and Mm -hmm. we get on a plane and we come back, can I still drink it? I mean, you can. Will it be good? No, probably not. Right wine to have with certain foods according to you. Uh, So what wine goes best with a nice, delicious, juicy burger? Um, I would say a 
like a Barbera Dalba. Veggie burger. Veggie burger. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, skin contact white from California. Best wine to have on my mom's Columbia food. Mm, I would say um, there is this uh, really amazing producer in Itata, Chile. Um, and the the wine I'm thinking of is called La Raptura. And it is an amazing, amazing mineral, min- like white, minerally, just like stone fruit. It'll pair really well with spice. It'll pair really well with like anything. It's so good. Best wine to give as a gift to someone you don't know very well. Bubbles. Bubbles. Everyone loves bubbles. Thank you so much for joining me, Justine. This conversation was amazing, and I got to learn so much from it. And next week, we're going to talk about beer with my homie Juan Camilo, founder and owner of Dykeman Beer Company. Come through Washington Heights. And please go check out Calche Wine at calchewine.co. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producers Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford, and a special thanks to Brendan Burns and Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to the podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Thanks. Peace and love, y'all. Witness Docs from Stitcher. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.